0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, as always, Ricardo López, and today I'm joined by Dr. Sherifa Tekin. She is an associate professor of philosophy and director of the Medical Humanities Program at the University of Texas at San Antonio. Her, her work is in the philosophy of science slash medicine, philosophy of mind slash cognitive science and bioethics. So, Dr. Tekin, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you on.
1: Thank you, Ricardo. It's so nice to be here. Thanks for inviting me to your show.
0: Yeah, I was really worried. I was just about to butcher your name, but I, I apparently it didn't happen.
1: No, you did not. You were, you were really good.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that
1: was perfectly
0: great. Okay, great. So uh, let me start with this question. So is mental disorder a cultural construct?
1: ricardo this is a very tricky question
0: yeah i I know that's why i put it up first
1: (laughs) so if you read my work i really avoid giving straight yes or no kinds of answers to these type of questions because i feel like they are traps um so um but i mean it's a very very important question and i think it brings out the richness uh in these topics of both like what is culture Uh, what is a construct and what is a mental disorder. So um, I take kind of, you know, just like every philosopher, I want to begin with kind of some commitments, some assumptions that I have. Uh, I take actually culture to be continuous with biology uh, and I take humans uh, to be sitting in that kind of spectrum in that continuum. This means that, you know, by culture, we mean like social behavior and norms in human societies, the kind of knowledge that we generate, arts, laws, customs, traditions, and habits of like individuals like in these groups. And in that sense, of course, mental disorder is intimately tied to the culture Um, in some certain, like in order to even determine what makes a cognitive process or a kind of behavior, normal or abnormal, you know, orderly or disorderly, we need to have a basis, a, a norm, and that norm is definitely informed by the culture. Uh, so, you know, even like just kind of giving an example, like take something like, you know, hearing voices, uh, you know, if we kind of are in a culture in an environment where A lot of people do have these kinds of hearing, voice-hearing experiences. Uh, Perhaps they're like spiritual and they talk to God and so on and so forth. In that kind of environment, that kind of culture, voice-hearing would not be an abnormal phenomenon. Um, But it might be an abnormal, disorderly phenomenon in in another, in a different culture where voice-hearing is not typical. So, but this doesn't. None of this means that. mental disorder is somehow like not real or not, people do not experience mental disorders because as I said, uh, biology and culture are continuous. Like biology changes the culture and culture changes biology, right? Especially in terms of like humans, the interaction between the genes and the environment is you know, what caused like human evolution and uh, so on and so forth. So in that sense, uh, mental disorder is also very essentially tied to biology. And I think, but how we define the norms and what do we mean by a kind of well functioning, orderly mind in the biological sense, making those judgments require culture. Um, So I don't want to say that mental disorder is a purely cultural construct if by culture we exclude biology, Uh, but if we Put biology in the definition of the culture, which is, you know, my preferred definition of culture. Then, you know, I would be fine with, I guess, uh, mental disorder being a culturally informed phenomenon. But I still want to not call it a construct.
0: Right. I, I mean, these questions are very complicated because there's many angles through which we can tackle them. For example, if we look at them from a biological perspective, perhaps there are certain conditions where people feel distressed, but it's not really that from a biological perspective there's anything wrong with them because it, they don't really lower their fitness, for example. but And when it comes to the culture side of things, as you said, for example, in the traditional hunter-gatherer society or something Mm -hmm. like that they have shamans and people who hear voices and stuff like that can play their role in society and perhaps even if by hearing those voices or something like that they feel a bit distressed perhaps uh, they they wouldn't say that they would need help themselves because they think they're fulfilling an important role in society so
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And I really like that way of looking at it, right? Like, you know, what you did there is to really kind of try to understand, like, the purpose of defining, right? The purpose there. Like, you know, if this phenomena, you know, like, what role does it play? And do we have a need to kind of think of it as a disorderly phenomenon or not? Um, and that's very important.
0: Yeah. So, do you think that psychiatry, I, I mean, first of all, to what extent do you think that psychiatry takes into account cultural variation when, I mean, when theorizing and also when dealing with patients in a clinical context? And mm. if if it doesn't, do you think that it should take that into account?
1: Absolutely. That's a great question, Ricardo. Um, and I... I think it's very important to kind of think about, like, what psychiatry is. Like, psychiatry is not, like, just one unified science or one unified, like, you know, Practice. So my work, as you know, has been primarily focused on Western psychiatry and primarily I uh, kind of looked at the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the DSM, and and what I call the DSM-driven psychiatry. When I say DSM-driven psychiatry, I mean the kind of academic and clinical contexts in which mental disorder research is done that takes the guideline like the dsm as a primary starting point unfortunately i don't think that dsm driven psychiatry and the connected uh academic research and clinical practices has taken cultural variation very as seriously as uh it should um so what does that mean The kind of the picture of mental disorder that is drawn in the DSM, like from the description of what mental disorder is to uh, the criteria that define each of the mental disorders kind of works with like this almost like a um, picture of a person rather than the person itself. So in that sense, for instance, there's not a lot of kind of nuances with respect to age and development. Like, you know, you might experience depression, but that depression is kind of not thought in con- the context of maybe adolescence versus later in life or midlife crisis. So there are not that many nuances. And I think cultural variation is also one of them. Um, there are certain kinds of assumptions uh, that goes into defining mental disorders, for instance, that is not culturally responsive. I'm going to give you an example. Mental disorders are evaluated from a very individualistic standpoint uh, in the DSM, and that's primarily because I think Western societies are uh, societies where individual really is at the center and you know, agency and autonomy are very highlighted values. Um, So, in that sense, mental disorders are considered or classified, for instance, as things that happen to individual and that happen because of individuals. Um, So, uh,
0: let me just interrupt you. Does that mean then that the DSM does not take into account too much uh, things like social factors?
1: Yes, social factors or cultural factors and cultural norms. I mean, in some criteria for mental disorders those things come up but that's like one little sentence in the long list of criteria like for instance um some delusions or you know experiences like voice hearing and so on that involve religious experiences uh there's a there's a like sentence there um in the i think description of one of the personality disorders that says well but If, you know, speaking to God or kind of connecting to other, um, you know, having claiming these having to have these religious experiences is part of the kind of norm in the in that particular culture, then we should not think about it as mental disorders. But um, I still don't think that there's a systematic ways in which cultural cultural variation is informs mental disorder um, criteria or classifications. And this has been um, also thought about in the context of clinical treatment. I think it's very important to think about the DSM kind of framework as an educational framework in the sense that we train medical students Uh, nurses and so on with that framework in mind and these people are the ones then who will go treat patients themselves and I think in a lot of the context like people are really well-meaning and they try to engage with uh, individuals like individual circumstances and so on but um, they don't really get a training on how to engage with someone who is culturally very different from you and I think we will be seeing this more and more uh, as the world as immigration mm. refugees and so on, had they have become like, you know, a essential component of the landscapes we live in, not in the United States only, but of course in places like Turkey and I'm sure in Portugal or different parts of Europe with the most recent um, Afghani immigrants and refugees seeking uh, places. I think it would be really, really important to understand the cultural background of individuals Um, and the variations within there to be able to address their stress in the clinical contexts. So uh, I think psychiatry should do better in um, engaging with cultural variation in development and expression of mental disorder.
0: Yeah, I mean, you're referring migrants and refugees, and one of the things that came to mind, particularly when you refer to the fact that the DSM has some sort of uh, let's say, cultural ideology behind it, w- where it is too very individualistic. I mean, some of these migrants come from cultures that are more collectivistic in nature. So perhaps it wouldn't, uh, I mean, they wouldn't be uh, s- uh, served uh, as good as other people from more individualistic societies are in, uh, w- in a Western Absolutely. society.
1: Absolutely. That's a very good point. And now think about the kind of tension that might cause in the clinic. Let's say you're, uh, you know, a person's like loved one, like wife, husband, whatever, is experiencing some kind of, you know, mental distress. And when they go see the clinician, the clinician wants to speak to them one on one, right? Like in a kind of typical Western psychotherapeutic or clinical setting. But Uh, it's unheard of like what do you mean you need to take my wife inside and just talk to them like on you know on, on their own and I need to be there and there the clinician has to do a kind of a you know strike a good balance in kind of respecting and supporting the patient and their autonomy while also kind of being sensitive to the kind of cultural dynamics and the backgrounds and so on and so forth i just um uh, collaborated with a number of uh, psychologists and and, uh, and psychiatrists actually uh, we wrote the um handbook the oxford handbook, handbook for for psycho psychotherapeutic ethics psychotherapy mm-hmm. ethics and uh, one of the articles that jennifer Radden and uh, jerry Knoll, uh write in that paper is actually about dealing with kind of immigrant and immigrants in the clinical setting and the kinds of maybe cultural um sensitivities that psychiatrists or clinicians must develop to be able to to serve the needs of those populations and they give perfect examples for uh, of these kinds of scenarios
0: yeah i mean you mentioned that kind of one-on-one interaction that we are used to in a psychiatric context or uh, clinical psychological context in the west uh, i mean the patient and the doctor alone but uh, perhaps i was just thinking that perhaps in some of these more collectivist societies uh, people gathering together and for example if someone has some sort of problem and uh, uh, they gather together all the people from the community and perhaps is, it's Precisely because they try to solve to help people in a collective manner. That maybe in some of these societies, people who would in fact be diagnosed uh, diagnosed with a mental condition deal well with them. I don't know.
1: Exactly. No, that's that's perfectly true. And like another example is. This is one of my, um, and like, as you said, like that kind of collective decision making and, you know, in some of those contexts, like, oh, let's like consult with the elderly, you know, Mm -hmm. or have a lot more experiences and see what they say and take that advice, like seriously. Those are very important. In fact, uh, there is really interesting research coming from sociology about um, recovery rates of schizophrenia in uh, developing countries versus developed countries. So what they find, what data shows basically is that individuals who are diagnosed with schizophrenia have higher recovery rates in developing countries than in developed countries. Mm. So one of my colleagues, and he's a social scientist and I co-authored a paper that was published in 2018, um, where we looked at some of the reasons that these social scientists are giving for uh, people for these high recovery rates. And they talk about stuff like um, these individuals were never kind of pushed out of the society. Let's say somebody Mm -hmm. has schizophrenia-like experience and so on, Uh, they're not locked in a kind of mental hospital or isolated left alone, Mm -hmm. but they are rather part of a community and um, like having meaningful work is also seems to be a factor. Uh, and like giving kind of some kind of jobs for these individuals so that, you know, they uh, make a living and they kind of uh, are still feeling somewhat useful in the society and so on. And the argument is that like all of these kinds of practices in those cultures might be uh, responsible for higher recovery rates, whereas in the kind of Western context, usually... Because these people are considered dangerous to themselves and others, there's like kind of isolation of them from that community. And even in the, you know, psychiatric unit, they might have to be in their own room, and they have these like very, uh, I guess, rehearsed interactions with the clinicians there. Not a lot of social interaction or access to their family and love and support. Uh, And you know, they receive medication treatment and so on. So um, some of these sociologists think that like these are like wildly different practices and i think it's about the kind of cultural variation and variation in the cultural practices as you said And maybe there are things that we should be um or at least like the west should be looking for examples from uh, developing countries in managing mental illness
0: yeah when you talked about isolation one thing that came to mind was the fact that in the west we have lots of homeless people that suffer from mental conditions so i don't know if in those other kinds of more collectivist societies that would happen that much
1: yes no absolutely and of course these are very anecdotal observations but um in like when i travel in rural areas in turkey where i'm from um i don't see a lot of homeless people uh and it's like kind of you know and I'm sure there are people who are experiencing, you know, ins- like financial insecurities and home insecurities and so on, whereas sure. homelessness kind of is like this cluster of like homelessness comes with these cluster of problems. And it's hard to kind of, at least in the West, understand which came first and, you know, uh, but it's definitely it requires more um, hands on, supportive environments for those individuals to um flourish which is something that I'm sure we will uh, get to talk about throughout this uh, interview
0: yeah I mean just another comment I mean I I think it would be interesting to get to understand a little bit better I mean even in individualistic societies to what extent the community part of people's lives is still important because uh, I mean of course uh, if for example, homelessness due to psychiatric conditions is higher in individualistic societies versus collectivistic ones. I mean, perhaps that would say something in terms of how much even if you live in an individualistic culture because of your own human social nature, you would also need help from other
1: Absolutely, people. absolutely. In fact, so uh, as you probably know, um, you know, as a philosopher, uh, I really like kind of looking at, you know, empirical work in the sciences, but I also read uh, first person accounts of individuals uh, yeah. who are experiencing mental, mental disorders. And one of the themes that emerges, and of course, like, you know, writing like a memoir or writing a testimony involving your mental disorder experiences is usually kind of after the fact kind of phenomenon, right? Like you have gone through a really challenging time up and then you came out and like you know there's like some kind of like growth that happened and what uh, in what I find in a lot of those memoirs um that people talk about what helped them was are things like having meaningful jobs and having a good social network and Mm -hmm. having very supportive family members having a community of individuals who share similar experiences and I don't think this is some magical secret formula like as a graduate student if you have graduate student friends you do better because you're all in the same uh you know process going through the same challenges and you can help each other out like similarly uh i think one of the challenges that we one of the things that we've been talking about in the context of education in the pandemic was for our students to not have those like natural groups and Collaborations and friendships that develops in undergraduate education um, that supports their success. So. Uh, in that sense, kind of going back to mental disorder, and like these, when you look at these stories of people who've, you know, done well withstanding their limitations and their experiences, uh, and the common theme that repeatedly emerges community, work, meaningful life, love, like support, all the things that we all, human, um, all humans actually need. So, uh, and that's very important, I think, to keep in mind.
0: Yeah. So uh, changing topics now, what do you think about psychiatry focusing on drugs? Do you think that modern psychiatry focus to, uh, focuses too much on drugs or not?
1: Yes. Um so again kind of starting with the like um you know drugs do work like i mean we're, again because we're biological like beings drugs do work so does running you know like there are all these things that you know one, one might kind of want to look at our biological nature and think about the kinds of things that of course um aid in doing or help individuals like live better lives and be more healthy and like happy Um, But I do also think that there's over-reliance on medication treatment and not only over-reliance, but almost kind of um, substitution of any kind of treatment with like drugs. So um, drugs are usually the first choice of treatment that individuals are given. And that's because of, I think, their um, ease you know it's a lot it's really a lot easier to uh kind of take some medications mm-hmm. to manage some of your symptoms than try to kind of work through them like in different arenas it's uh in a kind of especially in a, in, in the context of healthcare, care where time really is money and um i'm not I'm that knowledgeable about portuguese's um healthcare system but uh in the united states we have a very financially driven um healthcare system uh, in those kinds of contexts, actually seeing a patient 15 minutes and then prescribing them with medication um, is a lot more effective than, you know, or like efficient at least than, you know, trying to understand and maybe see, determine whether, you know, what they can benefit from. Uh, and I think that there is like reason for us to kind of have a pause and think about whether that is like the best approach because we know that actually re- there's research that shows combination of psychotherapy and medication treatment um, is performs a lot better than medication or psychotherapy alone yeah. um, and I think you need to increase the number of studies that look at this data about like you know what happens in the long run um, there are some philosophers who say well you know actually like medications are not as effective in the long run um, you know their efficacy is really low and individuals with mental disorders are usually encouraged to kind of keep changing their medications and so on and so forth so i think we must um make sure that psychiatry does not mean just prescribing drugs because um as i said like humans are complex being of course we are biological mechanisms but we are also cultural and reason responsive mechanisms and there are we can change we can change some of our habits through work on ourselves or you know, engaging and learning and understanding and socialization, that we must tap onto those resources as well as our resources as, as biological beings. And just thinking about drugs, I think, underestimates um, the value that can be gained by treating individuals as reason-responsive agents who are social and kind of living in an environment and so on and so forth.
0: Mm -hmm. So let's now talk about another thing that in your work uh, you say that might play a a role in the clinical context. So what is the self?
1: Oh, this is another tricky and difficult (laughs) question, Uh, Ricardo. So I define the self. um, And of course, this concept of self has a long history in philosophy and psychology and cognitive science um, and, you know, religion, like. So this is such a kind of key concept for a lot of different disciplines. Uh, In my view, um, I define the self as a complex, dynamic and multi-aspectual mechanism of different capacities, processes and traits that support a degree of agency. So, uh, and the kind of key elements here, I think in this definition is complexity it's not a simple unity unified thing yeah. um it's more like a system or mechanism than a thing uh you know and you know think about like a bicycle system right like how the gears are connected to the uh you know pedals and the direction and so on it's like everything is kind of reliant on one another there's like some mechanistic like structure there um and that kind of kept in, but that mechanism of like different capacities and processes and states has some kind of a like rhythm and more or less unifiedness that support a degree of agency. Again, you know, in the bike example, you know, you can actually um, turn your bike. Like there are things that bike does uh, that is above and beyond what the parts of the bike does, but the bike does need those parts to be able to do actually what it's doing um so and and this kind of more or less unified dynamic mechanism is in constant interaction with uh the social world, physical world, culture and the lang- and language and linguistic world um so i think you know being able to grasp and understand and engage with the world in this kind of abstract conceptual sense is a very important dimension of the self um that we can kind of talk about more
0: yeah and what role does it play in a clinical context then
1: Mm -hmm. so um Interestingly enough, so when you look at kind of the work of like social workers or clinicians or you know psychiatrists and so on, there's a lot of like kind of engaging with the person who is like the subject of the treatment there, right? Like you know somebody comes to you with a set of problems uh, and you know they can't sleep or they're anxious and like whatever. So uh, in those kind of you know clinical contexts, in these piecemeal contexts I guess, always that person has always been kind of the subject of like inquiry or understanding. So like your clinician, you know, or social worker asks the patient, okay, so like, what do you do for a living? Are you experiencing financial stress and things like this? Um, So in that sense, I think they do engage with what I would call a self, right? Like the self, like in it's kind of complexity. Yet, when you look at the academic psychiatry, or again, kind of what I call like DSM-driven research in psychiatry, the construct of the self or the concept of person, um, neither of these concepts, and sometimes like self and person are used interchangeably in philosophy. um, I don't always use them as interchangeably, but Mm -hmm. Nonetheless, neither the self nor the concepts of person have been a placed, a kind of put in a central place in our understanding, scientific understanding of mental disorders. So uh, my core argument that I'm um, writing a book on right now is that this concept of self should be an important kind of target of analysis and inquiry in understanding and scientifically explaining mental disorder. Uh, because actually focusing on the self does help in the clinical context. So why why don't we approach the self in a more systematic manner to unpack mental disorders and educate future medical practitioners to understand and think about mental disorders in that complexity, because I think ultimately that is the best form of uh, treatment that people uh, should be receiving in the clinical context.
0: Mm -hmm. And does the self have anything to do with personal narrative?
1: Great question. So, uh, yes, it does have something to do with personal narrative. But uh, some philosophers have equated the self with having a personal narrative. So uh, there are some approaches to the self that says, well, self is a narrative construct or that, you know, the self has to have this like overarching life narrative. I am in complete disagreement with those kinds of approaches. I think self narratives or personal narratives are a dimension of what makes the self self, but they cannot, or, but the self cannot be singularly defined by personal narrative. Um, the stories that I tell myself about myself definitely end up playing a kind of constitutive role in what becomes of me. Um, true or false, right? Like we don't always tell us to, tell, tell ourselves the truth, uh, um, but it's false to equate the self just to personal narrative because there are other factors uh, that have nothing to do with my personal narrative. I mean, how I sound with an accent or how I look are not things that I can change or undo or whatever with my personal narrative. So, and I think those are very important factors in uh, making the self what the self Yeah, you know, making the self who it is
0: but do you think that people need the personal narrative for them to function properly
1: i think like i think people have multiple narratives i think like so i think of personal narratives or narratives as these like, kind of cognitive sense making tools uh, to you know, describe ourselves or to think about ourselves. So I don't think that we have one narrative. We have multiple narratives, and sometimes these narratives compete with one another. Uh, so I think having a more or less like coherent or connected like network of narratives might help. Might be helpful in individual kind of doing better or functioning better. But I don't think it's a requirement. Uh, because everybody is different. Like, I mean, I'm a very um, conceptually and verbally oriented person, and my personal narratives and their connection to one another, and how I think about all of these. Um, the different aspects of my life. True narratives is very important for me. Like I do want to have a more or less coherent and consistent narrative web uh, in defining my actions. I'm, I'm like, okay, so I'm a researcher with integrity, or you know, I'm a dedicated teacher. So how do I act as a dedicated teacher, right? Um, but I don't think this is necessary, like because people are different. I mean, I have uh, my husband is actually perfectly functional human being and I don't think he has like these overarching kind of goals of like coherence in his like narrative world and so on and so forth. We're all very different and I don't think that it's the necessity um, to function properly to have this like awesome network or awesome network, awesome driven networks uh, of narratives.
0: Yeah, I also know a lot of people that they don't seem to me to have very coherent self narratives, and they seem to be much happier than I am. <laughs> yes,
1: exactly. I mean, that's yeah, that's a whole other thing. You know, like do we really have to focus on our work on the self? Because maybe we should just not think about the self at all. Um, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah.
0: So, uh, what is flourishing?
1: Okay. So. Um, when i was writing like this was of course like 11 years more than 11 years ago now when i was writing my dissertation i kept thinking about like flourishing and doing better and eudaimonia and happiness i think like my sense of flourishing is very similar to a kind of an aristotelian sense of like flourishing as like doing well or uh, where it's not a um It's not a state of like happiness, but it's rather a state of action, like state of doing. Uh, And I think I'm going to kind of take that like as my main framework for flourishing, and saying that this kind of developing psychological and social skills um, that enable the person um, kind of enable the person to connect to themselves and their social world. in a way that um, in a way that her that, that kind of allows her to kind of have these skills that can make the individual connect very functionally with herself and in the in the social world withstanding the kinds of challenges that they may be they might be experiencing so i think this is kind of this like you know um, sometimes like one of my favorite philosophers is George Graham and he all he uses this expression like this honest to god understanding of yourself i think there is that that kind of like honest to god like you know very straight up okay so i have these constraints like you know i have these limitations or you know these things that could be construed as limitations in the, under these circumstances but what can i do how can i develop social and psychological skills that enables me to develop better connections with myself and social world, regardless of these kinds of constraints and challenges. So, um, I think like, and what kinds of skills are these? Like, I think these are psychological and social skills that strengthen somebody's agency um, and autonomy, like the kind of ability to be themselves, to work and to act like themselves, uh, you know, kind of cultivating themselves withstanding all of those challenges so that might mean if somebody has to use a wheelchair um, their life is not over they can still have a very flourishing um fulfilling satisfying life where they connect with themselves and the social world in a very kind of productive and rich way
0: and would this concept of flourishing apply in the clinical context
1: yes uh i think One kind of downside of thinking about mental disorders as like problems and things to be fixed rather than um, kind of points in the spectrum, in a broad spectrum of like normal and abnormal is that uh, there's like this kind of assumption that if you have a mental disorder, you're done. Like you can't flourish at all. And, And this is not unsurprising, because even when you explore the kind of philosophical literature on like doing well and happiness and flourishing, I mean, even in Aristotle, being a rational agent was a prerequisite to uh, eudaimania, to doing well, because it's only through rationality, exercising, practicing your rationality that you could, you know, find the moderate mean and flourish and so on and so forth and that's not very different in kind of modern philosophy and like in the more contemporary philosophy but also in the context of mental disorders and i mean we have stigma if you have a mental disorder you might experience stigma or um you know that's something that you ought to keep hidden and the, you know there are all these kind of expectations you know assumptions that like being having a mental illness is a bad thing and that you know if you have that then unless you undo it you can't really be happy and flourish and that's the idea that I'm um, trying to challenge in my work because there are so many examples of people who have experienced a lot of challenges and who yet flourished perfectly in the kind of You know ideal uh you know american dream sense of like flourishing um so i don't think and i think we we have to start thinking about mental disorders as just like one of those constraints um but that 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 kind of experience perhaps that might make you more resilient and uh, flourish even better so uh that's the kind of what i'm trying to kind of push back against the idea that mental if you have mental disorder you can't flourish
0: Is artificial intelligence used to treat mental disorders?
1: Oh, yes. So, um, yes, it is. And I think some of these uses are not bad. Uh, So how is it used? So like um, artificial intelligence or kind of technology at large Uh, especially during the pandemic, have been used to facilitate better access to help, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, you can, I mean, it's artificial intelligence when my calendar automatically schedules a Zoom meeting with a student by clicking on something, right? Uh, And again, I think um, the ability to have like virtual sessions, virtual psychotherapy and so on, these are all like thanks to kind of different kinds of artificial intelligence. Um, that have been made possible. Now, it's a little bit perhaps easier to have access to resources. But there's a whole other way in which artificial intelligence is trying to be used by way of um, creating what I call chatbot psychotherapists. So basically, the, the goal is to write an algorithm, design a chat you know, chatbot robot, basically, um that can respond and assist to individual who is experiencing the stress and some of these um chat bots are you know used are called like robot like that's that's associated with facebook and there's like variety of them out there and um they presumably use cognitive behavior therapy but i think it's misguided to call what they do therapy what, what they do as th- psychotherapy because what it does is basically an algorithm responding to an agent and kind of trying to help them like distract and like explain their problems. but um, more and more people are seem to be interested in using those kinds of technologies but I don't think, I think there are lots of problems uh, with that A I think clinical interaction or any r- interaction that's involving somebody's health, Uh, should involve actual persons, because um, it's not always like the medication you take or what the doctor tells you to do that's creating the therapeutic effect. This is in all illnesses. Uh, It's also that relationship that you build with your doctor, whether you trust them or not, whether you respect them enough to believe that they are helping you and they will be able to help you and so on. And these are very crucial components of I think healing and recovery. Uh, that is simply not there in by using a kind of chatbot basically replace an in-person psychotherapist. That said, I think there are ways in which we can take advantage of those kinds of like chatbot kind of mechanisms or technologies in enriching the psychotherapeutic encounter. So maybe there's an app that both the therapist and the patient jointly use and. Um, You know, like the patient actually tracks their mood and so on in that app. And then it's easier uh, or or kind of a lot more um, productive for the therapist to like, oh, like look at what how they were doing before. That's all that can also almost be like the the patient's chart, a part of their chart. So uh, but I think it's very important to make sure that like we have like ethicists, clinicians and so on on board and working together to develop these technologies um, instead of just kind of number of people in Silicon Valley deciding to write an app that will um, help people treat the, get, you know, get treatment for their mental disorders.
0: Mm-hmm. And since you mentioned online meetings, particularly during this pandemic, what do we know about how the COVID-19 pandemic has been affecting people mentally?
1: I think uh, social isolation, um, as well as various other stresses like you know you know having an existing illness and being worried to get uh, you know sickness or having you know, to work in these like emergency room kind of health context like requirements and or having your family members who are aging and so on like so there were all these like additional stressors that I think have contributed to people's encounter with uh, mental um, disorder but I don't want to also say um, some of the phenomena that people experience like I mean losing their loved ones and um, or losing their jobs and so on I don't want to kind of label every kind of experience falling out of like covid just as a mental disorder if anything i think it should go the other way around we should perhaps look at the kinds of stresses or mental disorder like experiences that people have experiencing due to COVID, as reasons to kind of think more carefully about the social determinants of mental health and uh, kind of, oh, okay, so maybe depression is really connected to all these other uh, factors in an individual's life. You know, just like in COVID, this is like what people have experienced. So I think, um, I mean, I'm, you know, this is one of those things where your research subject suddenly becomes like a big thing. And like, there's a horrible like pandemic and so on. But at the same time, for me, it's been like, Oh, yes. So like, exactly. This is what you know, I've been writing about, like in terms of mental health for all these years. And now suddenly, there's more of an attention to that. And I think maybe it will help um, remove the stigma around having a mental disorder, because now we are collectively you know, experiencing these things and, uh, you know, maybe can people can better understand others who are encountering depression or schizophrenia or other kinds of experiences.
0: Well, I I mean, perhaps some of those cases that you described are not are just normal responses. It's not even mental disorders, like, for example, uh, losing, losing a loved one. I mean, it's perfectly normal to experience grief, at least for some amount of time
1: absolutely absolutely and i think that, that that's like why like i have gotten a lot of questions about like so is this mental illness is this mental illness i'm like no 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 this is actually a perfectly natural response to uh a lot of things happening. i mean does this mean that people like so i think it's very important to kind of keep this question in mind about like exactly what is psychiatry like if psychiatry is science or a medical discipline what is the goal of psychiatry right the goal of psychiatry is to address people's mental health-related distressors or whatever, that's the goal. And I think uh, if that's the goal, um, we should kind of think about this question. Okay, so what do I gain by labeling this experience illness? Like if by labeling them as having depression is the only way for me to get help and support, then there must be something wrong with that picture, right? Mm -hmm. Ideally, Uh, You know, there must be cultural and social ways of addressing and engaging with experiences like grief and so on that people should not have to be going into a mental health professional to receive help and support and care, right? And I think these experiences should just like focus us, turn us back into actually trying to understand what it means to be a human uh you know not you know what it means to have a mental disorder or whatever but what is human experience like what are you know why do we grieve why do like what is like why do we have these like challenges in life like why can't why do i have difficulty getting up you know out of bed well because i haven't left my house in a week and i'm really finding it hard to motivate myself to continue to work from home i think it's very very important to kind of us, for us to stop thinking about order disorder, but also, but think about, like, the richness of human experience and its dark and very light uh, parts in that yeah. complexity.
0: So since you mentioned that, is psychiatry a science? Um,
1: yes. Um, I mean, I think so. I, it's not a unified science or it's not, like, just kind of this, like, one scientific field with like particularly clearly defined uh, methods and methodologies, but I think it is an empirical inquiry. And I think uh, doing a systematic research on um, human phen- phenomena pertaining to mental disorder, related to mental disorders, uh, should be a scientific enterprise because the goals of, the goals of science are very noble. Uh, I mean, of course, I'm biased because I do, I'm, a, I'm I'm a philosopher of science. But what are the goals of science? Well, okay, so goals of science is to get at truth. Goals of science is to improve life uh, in one way or another, right? Whether it's by you know I don't know exploring other uh, uh, other planets uh, in the universe or trying to find the measles vaccine and you know so on, right? It has those goals, but also it's it has the power to generate change in a society in a very, in a very collective way, uh, and I think that's what makes distinguishes science from other uh, practices. In the sense that, like when you think about, um, you know, religion, um, that affects individuals. I mean, it affects kind of collectively cultures as well in some regard. But science is kind of you can, if you can understand, if you can find one treatment, then you can use the same treatment reliably across a number of individuals and kind of improve where that kind of systematic improvement or systematic help and support is not really there. Uh, so, in that sense, I think psychiatry is a science, um, but perhaps it requires revisiting what exactly we mean by science. Um, what kinds of what kind of scientific practice should psychiatry be like should it be more like neuroscience or you know sociology or anthropology and i think those are kind of um, the kind of tricky questions that come after that but in so far as its goals are concerned and its methodology is concerned i think psychiatry is science
0: okay so when it comes to uh talking about and understanding what science is really about i mean we have philosophers from last from the last century like thomas kuhn so we think we can learn anything about psychiatry through a kuhnian perspective
1: yes we can i think kuhn is probably one of the best philosophers of science uh that can help us to think about what kind of psychiatry what kind of science is psychiatry um, as you probably know, Jeffrey Pollan and I co a, a book uh, published with the MIT Press. And the title of our book is called Extraordinary Science and Psychiatry. Mm-hmm. And that extraordinary science, phenomenon of extraordinary science, of course, totally refers to Kuhn. I think the first kind of contribution of Thomas Kuhn or the Kuhnian understanding of uh, philosophy of science to psychiatry as a scientific enterprise is that uh, Kuhn made... it stark that in order to understand what science is we need to look at what scientists do what is actually happening in sciences as opposed to having a, this kind of idealized picture of science as you know an objective represented representation <laughs> of like the facts of the matter in the world where knowledge like progresses cumulatively and, you know, like you do like falsifications, like in the kind of Popperian sense and so on and so forth. Um, Kuhn said, even actually for a science like physics, which is kind of the, I don't know, the poster child for sciences, uh, at least for the for gold for standard. of <laughs> science. Yeah. And like, well, you know, even in the context of like physics, turns out there are lots of perhaps extra factors beyond truth and reason and evidence that get in the process of science. So in this question of how scientists do science becomes really important, Kuhn said, well, turns out it's actually people who do science. uh, And um, scientific decisions, therefore, cannot be separated from the fact that it's people who are making those scientific decisions. And I think especially in understanding the DSM-driven psychiatry, this is a very, very important framework because, um, oh, actually, yeah, it's a group of individuals, some of them are psychiatrists and some of them are military who got together to create the first manual of mental disorders, right? Uh, Oh, so like they were doing research, but there was also a lot of like kind of power relationships and power dynamics or, you know, interests Military was interested in creating a psychiatric taxonomy because uh, they had to determine who was fit to go to war, Um, right? And I think when we, and Kuhn helps us kind of see psychiatry as this like, oh yeah, so like all of these social and kind of instrumental factors played in the, kind of classification of mental disorders, and there are lots of competitions between different kinds of paradigms uh, within, like even within psychiatry. I mean, there are, uh, you know, psychiatrists who are really, really interested in like social phenomena, but there are psychiatrists who would not read or think about anything other than neuroscience these days, right, so, um, and I think Kuhn helps us create a good framework for understanding how science works, uh, I wouldn't want to go as far as like it's this kind of irrational affair, like mob psychology or whatever, but uh, given some of the tensions that we observe in the creation of the diagnostic manual or the revision of the diagnostic manual, it feels pretty much like a mob psychology sometimes where uh, how different kind of power dynamics get into play. Um, so I think Kuhn helps us give a maybe honest uh, evaluation of what psychiatry is, but also I think um it shows a direction to where to move for how to move forward. I'm a big fan of feminist philosophers of science who picked up some of the Kuhnian ideas about values and science in um you know thinking about like you know, climate science or you know, anthropology or other sciences, you know, people like Alison Wiley or um Heather Douglas and I've been using their work in my in recent writing in kind of thinking about like psychiatry as a form of like value-based science and how do we kind of make progress understand mental disorders attain objectivity phenomena like this in light of a more a kind of value value value-based schema
0: Mm -hmm. okay so dr Tekin, where can people find your work on the internet
1: my website (laughs) uh i actually have a commitment to share my work directly to public uh, so that my articles are not behind the paywall um so i do uh put you know the kind of final drafts of my papers on my website and people can download and read them and the books the edited books i can't of course put the, put up the full edited books but a lot of libraries do have um do give electronic access and i'm always happy to you know send people whatever I can if they email me and I have been trying to do that.
0: And would you like to tell us about your next book?
1: Yeah. So right now, um, my first, I'm trying to finish this book, uh, reclaiming the self in psychopathology where I develop some of these themes, uh, where I look at like kind of, you know, the history of psychiatry a little bit and the kind of problems that I see in, um, contemporary psychiatry, um, and kind of try to provide solutions to those problems. And one of my biggest, and you know, one of my observations is like, well, a patients who are experiencing mental disorders have not been part of um, the explanatory frameworks that talk about mental disorders, um, even though it's a perfectly, I think empirical and scientific way of analysis and asking people what they experience and how it is like and I think that those personal narratives and personal stories should be an important part of the uh, kind of scientific at least scientific decision making process right we can't just take everyone's testimony and put that and hope that something will happen magically Um, but it kind of promotes the idea that we need to produce scientific or knowledge in psychiatry in this collective manner. And I provide one way in which to do that. I say, here is a model of the self that can be used as a target of inquiry in psychiatry. And this model of the self actually happens to find a way for those personal testimonies and so on, make, it, make their way to scientific reasoning. Um, just like other forms of evidence coming from uh, cognitive sciences and neurosciences and sociology and so on and so forth. So that's the first book. And I'm also um, in the planning stages of writing a little book on the self, Uh, kind of make, you know, tracing, uh, it's a very brave project because I don't like, there are not that many books called the self because (laughs) it's such a loaded concept both metaphysically and empirically that people just want to stay away from it but i kind of want to like write a i'm going to work on this book that you know is an opinionated introduction to what the self is and so on of course i'm a philosopher of science and my approach will be more pragmatic um in that way. And then uh, I have been thinking a lot about medical education and medical humanities, and I'm now the director of this program. I want to kind of um, write a book on medical humanities, and you know, what is this enterprise, and you know, what kind of interdisciplinary work can happen, and what kind of form of inquiry it is, and, and so on and so forth. So these are the kind of like um, the first three on my radar, but we'll see how um, things will kind of go in the next few years.
0: But do you already have any publication date for any of them?
1: Yes. So um, I need to submit the final version of my Reclaiming the Self book in January 2023. So um, a little more than a year, Um, in a little more than a year. Um, And I'm actually going to be at the Center for Philosophy of Science at the University of Pittsburgh in the spring to wrap up my book. And I think the other self-book will probably be a year after that. Um, And we'll see what happens with the medical humanities kind of book. That's, yeah, that's not, you know, my immediate list yet.
0: Well, anyway, I hope to have you on the show again to talk about your next book in hopefully 2023. And thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show.
1: Thank you so much, Ricardo. It was wonderful to talk to you.
0: Hi, guys. Thank you for watching this interview until the end. I would like to ask you to please consider supporting the show. You will have links in the description box to Patreon and PayPal. Any amount, even just $1 per month, would already be a great help. Otherwise, if you like what I'm doing, please share the interview, leave a like, and hit the subscription button. This show is brought to you by NLights Learning and Development Done Differently. Check their website at nlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters Karen Litska, Anne Blanchett, Parurga Larson, Lau Guerrero, Francis Ford, and Frederick Sunda, Ricardo Vladimir, Craig Healy, Adam Kessel, Olaf Alex, and Jonathan Wiesel. Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whittingbird, Arnaud Wolf, Tim Hollis, Henry Kalenia, Alenia, John Connors, Paulina Baron, Philip Forrest Connelly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Guintes, Rutger Voss, Bo Weingard, Rebecca Newberger goldstein Dan Demetri, Robert Windegar, Rui Inacio, Arthur Coe, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Columbus, George Spinha, Phil Cavana, Corey Clark, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguenzo, Mikkel Stormir, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Thiago Nunes, Bernard Yugni, Alexander Dunbauer, Omari Hickson, Fergal Cusson, Ivan Bodrenko, Hal Herzog, Don Ross, Jonathan Labyrinth, Oslon Bullut, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, JW, Joan Weira, Tom Hamel, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Desarauj, Widen Solon, Romain Roach, Dmitry Grigoriev, Diego Londoño Correa, Tom Roth, Yannick Punter, Adana Ruzmani, Charlotte Blizz, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Ostasevski, Nelek Bach, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Al Ortiz, Guy Madison, Gary G. Allman, João Linhares, Lida Cosmidi, Saima Afzal, Adrian Yegi, Nick Golden, Paulo Tolentino, João Barbosa, Jules Price, Edward Hall, Edin Bronner. My producers, Isar Webb, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafinia Kian Gilligan, Sérgio Quadriano, uh, Luis Caetano, Tom Vanegdam, Curtis Dixon, John Linhares, Benedict Muller, Vega Gide, Sardis France and Thomas Trumbull. And my executive producers, Michel Rugieski, Rosie, James Pratt, Matthew Lavender, Sérgio Quadriano and Jason Party. Thank you for all.